as I mentioned yesterday already, there are four supreme emotions. And uh, I've only explained the first one so far, metta. So we'll have a look at the other three. And they, of course, are also for the purification of the heart. And they are necessary practices in our daily lives. As our meditation practice, we can only direct ourselves, but the actual test comes in daily life. So the second one is compassion, karuna in Pali. Its far enemy is cruelty, which is easy to see, but its near enemy is not so easy to see. That's pity. And pity appears to be something very wholesome. And it is so similar in some of its expression to compassion that we can easily be fooled. But pity has the aspect of separating oneself from the other person by being sorry for them. And very often, underneath it all, one is very glad that it hasn't happened to oneself. One pitying another is also connected to feeling not only separate, but also in a way superior, because oneself doesn't have that kind of problem. Compassion is different from that. Compassion is calm as with, passion feeling, with feeling, empathy. It arises when one has taken already note of one's own difficulties and has seen so many of them arise. And then when somebody else has a problem, one can very often relate to that same problem in oneself. So one feels with the other person. One doesn't feel separated. One feels connected with the other person. And one realizes that the dukkha that the other person is experiencing has really no, is really not any different from anything oneself has experienced. Having been able to help oneself with that, to find a way out of one's own dukkha, one is then able to help someone else. So comp- real compassion can only be based on also some part of insight into oneself. Knowing the difficulty, but knowing the way out. If another person has a problem, is sad and uh, upset, or worried, or has difficulties, and then 
one feels upset with that other person because one has so much sensitivity to that problem also, then instead of having one unhappy person, we have two. And that's really not what we're after. What we're after is that the unhappy person may gain some benefit from the unhappiness that one herself has already experienced and that one has known how to deal with. So we don't need double dukkha. We only need single dukkha. One person is enough. Naturally, we need to have compassion with ourselves. Because if we don't have compassion with ourselves, it will be very difficult to arouse it for others. Although we often think we can do it, we really can't. It isn't a deep enough feeling. We may would, we might like to do it. We want to do it, naturally, because we know it's a good thing to do. But unless we have a deep feeling of compassion for our own difficulties and for the difficulties that we have as a human being, for no other reason than being a human being, we will not have compassion for the human race as a whole. We might pick and choose a few people that we have compassion for, but that's not the idea. Again, it is the idea of arousing that quality in one's heart so that the heart is compassionate and not picking and choosing just someone who may be um, known and uh, liked by us so that we can have compassion for their difficulties. Naturally, when people approach us with their difficulties, that is the test, but not just with those whom we like anyway. Anybody, everybody. And if nobody approaches us with their difficulty, compassion can still be cultivated in one's heart because we know that everybody has difficulties. And then when the occasion arises, when it comes near to us, we're already ready for that. A compassionate heart is a heart that is ready for anyone at any time. So to cultivate that, we start with ourselves. We don't blame ourselves for our difficulties. And that's the first step. But we recognize them, but we don't blame ourselves for it. We see them as part of being a human being. They are actually <clears throat> exactly that. All the difficulties that any one of us can experience is nothing but the human dilemma. There's nothing individual or personal about it. It just is. And when we have that as our base of understanding and then have a feeling of warmth and wanting to help ourselves, not being sorry for ourselves, not pity, but wanting to help ourselves out of the whichever dilemma it may be at that moment, then the compassion arises in the heart which is warm, 
helpful, which is concerned, but it does not deteriorate into unhappiness. And it certainly does not deteriorate into judgment or into separation. Now, when we do it for ourselves, obviously, we are connected. But when we try to have compassion for others, that connection may be on a very tenuous thread. So again and again, we need to realize and experience, actually, that there is no separation between us. What is true for me is true for everyone else. What helps me helps everyone else. We all have the same kind of mind consisting of four aspects, which I mentioned already earlier, feeling, perception, mental formation, and sense consciousness. We all have the same potential in the mind. We all have the same wishes and desires. We sometimes execute them a little differently, sometimes a little wiser and sometimes a little less wise, but that's only a matter of maturity. Human beings are one huge family of mankind. Man and womankind? I don't know. Can we say mankind and still keep it together? <laughs> Although we have that idea that we are all so different because to us we all look different. Really, sitting here, we all look different, don't we? Well, just take a trip to Asia, and you'll find that nobody can distinguish you from the next Westerner. We all look alike to them, and they all look alike to us. It's only because we're so used to seeing those differences. We all have the same limbs, the all same bits and pieces inside, unless we lost one already somewhere along the line. We all have the same abilities and capacities. We only cultivate different ones. So the differences which we see in ourselves and others are completely imaginary. And if we want to grow on the spiritual path, we have to manifest that somehow. We can't just think about it. Thinking about it is very nice. It's at least a start. If we don't think about it all, we're not going to get started, naturally. But after we have thought about it, we're going to have to do something. And as I've said before and will say again, I'm sure, just sitting on the pillow isn't enough. It's also very nice. At least it's a start. But... It doesn't do it. It's nothing but a means. So we have to manifest something. So if we want to manifest something, we've got to practice it. Compassion does not come by itself for all mankind. It's a practice. It's a process 
of cultivate, cultivating and developing those faculties within which are connected to others, which are wishing to manifest warmth and care. Now there isn't a single person in the world that doesn't have that ability. But there are many people who never cultivate it because they don't see that this is of the greatest value to themselves. The one who's got it is the one who benefits most. But other people also get some benefit from that. That's um, a secondary development. The greatest benefit is for the one who actually develops and practices the purification of the heart. A heart which is loving and compassionate cannot be hating and disliking at the same time. So the more we have the one, the less we'll have of the other. And while we often think that we are justified in disliking, if we really watch ourselves carefully, we will see quite clearly that maybe be justified ever so much, it doesn't make anybody happy. And because of that, we can already see that it's useless. We have enough unhappiness already in the world. We don't have to add to it. If we want to do anything sensible, we want to add to the happiness that exists in the world. That is a sensible and useful direction. And if we have that in mind, we can do it. There's absolutely nothing to stop us except our mind's direction. The more we know our own dukkha, and that doesn't have to be tragedy, just dukkha as I explained this morning, all the different aspects of it, how nothing can be kept, how everything is always moving and flowing away, how pleasant feelings are certainly no guarantee that we get as many unpleasant ones, that we often don't get what we want and often get what we don't want, that actually birth, decay, disease and death is enough dukkha for anybody and we usually have more than that. If we can see that clearly within ourselves, compassion must arise unless we turn ourselves away from it. We don't want to admit it, that it is something that we suffer from, that it is a difficult thing. Unless we don't want to admit that, if we admit it, Compassion with the human dilemma must arise. And if we have in mind the purification of our own heart, loving kindness and compassion both are not individually directed as a purification process. They are a universal aspect of our heart that we then are able also to give it out to each individual that arises in front of us with dukkha. That is the second result from that. 
but compassion and loving kindness are universal qualities which exist and the more we can develop them the more of it exists in the world the world needs it badly there is nothing more valuable than having that purification of the heart and we can see again and again that people who develop that and practice it and manifest it find great happiness within when we give out to someone else we cannot possibly at that time be concerned about ourselves so when we're not concerned about ourselves it's not possible to have a personal problem since all problems which we ever have had and will have and are having now are personal as soon as we let go of that and attend to the giving and connecting and being there for other people none of that can arise and therefore we have already a second venue of purification not only that we are purifying the heart to have the positive aspects of loving kindness and compassion but we're also incapable at that time to have any self concern so we're losing a lot of our egocentricity the whole of the teaching the whole of the path has only one direction and that is to get to the point where we see the ego delusion and let go of it anything we can do on the way to minimize it a bit will be of great benefit so when we realize that happiness and peacefulness arises at moments when we're not concerned with ourselves that should give us a very clear indication that this ego delusion is nothing but a really obstructive and um hurtful idea in our mind because the minute we let go of it even for a moment everything is fine that happens in meditation when we're able to let go of the thinking which is our ego affirmation and have moments of really only concentration we can become aware of the fact that this is peaceful that should really give us an idea what the buddha meant when he said that it is possible to get out of all dukkha because it's possible to get out of self delusion compassion is one way of cultivating and developing the purification and the lessening of egocentricity particularly if we feel that those those feelings that we can give to others counteract this idea that everybody has that oneself is the center of the universe now intellectually that's nonsense 
It's absurd. Everybody knows that. Feeling-wise, it's exactly what happens. We're right in the middle, and everything else is happening around us. So we've got five billion centers of the universe. <laughs> but when we give out to others, when others become our focus of attention, that center shifts. And that means we're coming a little nearer to reality. Because to be the center of the universe is obviously an absurdity. So when that center shifts, we feel more in connected, feel more in tune with everything that's around us. This tuning in to the whole environment, natural environment, and the tuning in to the people around us gives us an indication that there is existence, there is manifestation, but it doesn't have to be so personal. All that helps us to flow much better in our daily lives. It takes a little bit of attention and mindfulness to realize whether it is pity or compassion. And it means that we can go inside of ourselves and check out whether connectedness is there or whether separation. Pity has separation. Compassion, connectedness. The next one of the, the third one of the uh, four supreme emotions is called sympathetic joy or joy with others in Pali Mudita. Its far enemy is envy, jealousy. Its near enemy is hypocrisy. Joy with others is a an aid to get rid of depression. If one suffers from depression, it is often due that one can't see anything joyful in one's life. If we can arouse some joy with others, with their good fortune, then at least we can see some joy happening. Now, to envy someone else about their good fortune or to be jealous is foolish. We should be absolutely delighted if another person has good fortune. Because good fortune is. It doesn't belong. It just is. And it adds to the goodness in the world because that person has joy about it. It adds to the joy in the world. Whether we ourselves have it or somebody else, what's the difference? At least it's there. And it counteracts all the misery and all the difficulties that people have so much of. So to 
To want that, what someone else has, that's real dukkha. Because we know already as a foregone conclusion that we can't possibly get it. Somebody else has it. So it's not even, not even as, as foolish as wanting something that we haven't got. It's far more foolish than that. Because somebody already has it. But if we can see the lack of separation between us, the whole of the universe as one great manifestation, then it will never occur to us not to be joyful when somebody else has good fortune. It will be our greatest pleasure to know that someone has pleasure. And it doesn't matter what their joy is based on, whether they are joyful because they had a good meditation session or whether they are joyful because they bought a new color TV, it doesn't matter, as long as they have joy. And having joy is all that counts, and having joy with them. It is... um. It is a very ingrained idea in the Buddhist teaching. And I once was in a village in the north of Thailand, northeast of Thailand, where the villagers had put a special bell at the temple, which anyone who had had some good fortune was supposed to ring. Either the, the wife was uh, had come back from hospital and was well again, or the roof had been repaired, or the harvest was good, or a baby was born, or the goat had a uh, baby, or whatever it was. Anything of good fortune that the person liked, they were supposed to ring that. And then as they were ringing the bell, all the people in the village would hear that, the very small village, would hear that and would come out of doors and would turn towards the temple where the man or the person was standing ringing the bell and would say, sadhu, 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 which means well done, well done, well done. And uh, giving an expression of their joy with the other person's good fortune. Now the whole lot of them were making good karma. The first one was making good karma because he was giving an opportunity to the other people to have joy with them. And the others were making good karma by having the joy with them. Now, we don't have temple bells like that around here, do we? So we'll have to ring our own bells. Become very alert and very sensitive to the fact that other people may be even telling us something that they have had good fortune with. Or they may be smiling, and we might be able to ask them, what are you smiling about? And they'll say, something good has happened. And then we can have that expression with them of being really happy about it. Now, that has to be an absolute feeling inside, that we're happy about the other person's happiness, because otherwise it turns into the near enemy of hypocrisy, where it may be that our neighbor might have won a big
big prize in a lottery and a lot of money or something like that, and we feel duty-bound to go over there and congratulate that person. And all the while, while we're walking from our house to his house, we're thinking, what does he need all this money for? Why don't I ever win anything? And uh, we get over there and we see he's already got two cars in the garage and he's already got a boat in the back garden. And our mind goes to say, it always happens to the wrong people. And then when he opens the door, we say, oh, isn't it wonderful? Isn't it marvelous that you won all this money? There's no feeling of joy in there. It's just the hypocrisy of doing that what is expected of one or what one thinks is expected of one. And that's a useless thing to, to do. And actually, it's making bad karma because it's a lie. We should watch for, for hypocrisy. It goes right into lying, and that's making bad karma. But to arouse joy within oneself, when one sees, for instance, children playing, and they're having a good time, and uh, they may be dirty and wet and uh, uh, looking bedraggled, but they're having a wonderful time. So if one can see that and have joy with that, and even express it to them, maybe, or express it to anyone about anything at all, be it ever so small. We again are giving. We're giving out. We're connected, not separated. We're realizing our totality in this universe, and we're adding to the goodness in the world. Naturally, we're also purifying our heart, which is of the essence. And we are doing both the purification and the adding to the goodness in the world, all with such a simple matter as having joy with others. And of course, we are prevented from having uh, depression because something good is happening somewhere to somebody. And if we can have both aspects within, the compassion for those who are suffering, whatever the suffering may be, and the joy with those who are just having some beautiful experience, then our heart is going out to others under all circumstances. And our egocentricity, our ego, <clears throat> has shifted a bit. It is a feeling of giving and a feeling of not wanting. There's nothing we want. We're just giving. And at that time, there is great purity in the heart. And because of that, we feel happy. It's so simple. We have to distinguish happiness from pleasure, and that's easy enough. But when there's happiness inside, we know that that is based on goodness. The last one, equanimity, upeka in Pali, is the crowning glory of all emotions. As its far enemy, is, of course, restlessness and anxiety. Its near enemy is indifference. 
And again, they are so similar that it's hard to know the difference unless one becomes very alert to oneself. But we can tell the difference. Indifference is a turning away from coldness, disinterest, not wanting to be bothered, not wanting to have a connection because it might be hurtful. It never has any loving kindness and compassion in it. It is trying to protect oneself from feeling. One may have had bad experiences which create that kind of indifference. It's like putting on an armor, trying to turn away. And it has a feeling of hardness about it. Whereas equanimity is soft and gentle, it has loving kindness and compassion embedded in it, and it is not turning away from anything. It's being right in the middle of it. But being right in the middle of it and realizing quite clearly that everything constantly changes and that what we like now or dislike now will not be the same a few moments hence. Equanimity is therefore based on a fair bit of insight when it becomes real equanimity. It just, the happening is just happening. It doesn't have to have our own interference. We don't have to make it other than what it is. And we don't have to like or dislike it. We can just let it happen. Equanimity is that state of being where that one door out of the dependent arising is possible. When we have complete evenness towards our feelings. Now obviously, total equanimity, which is one of the seven factors of enlightenment, is only possible for an arahant, an enlightened one. But we can practice it. And the practice of equanimity cannot be suppression of one's reactions. It has to be a checking up of the reaction, watching the reaction, and seeing its uselessness. Now, not every reaction is useless, but many of them are. So when we see that this reaction that's coming up now is useless, then to change it. And that is practicing the equanimity rather than having already attained it. Obviously, we can't hope to attain this state of being without practicing it. It is the um, epitome of the emotional being in oneself because it's absolute, total peacefulness. Equanimity is can be can be called synonymous with peacefulness. When we know that we have tried all our reactions already, when we have tried to defend, to protect, 
to be uh, to attack when we have tried to uh, turn away to uh, change when we have tried all of them and have found them unsatisfactory we may be able to practice equanimity it's certainly the most difficult one of them all but because of that also the one that brings the greatest benefits when we have confrontations and that's when our equanimity usually disappears confrontations with other people that is the time to be very attentive to one's own reaction and watch it arising as some as heat as a movement as unpleasantness and realizing that if that is continued the unpleasantness will get much greater for both parties particularly for oneself watching this arising and allowing it to cease again without getting involved in it that is the practice of it having practiced that long enough nothing arises anymore because the understanding is there that whatever arises is nothing but based on delusion everything is as it is it just keeps on changing all the time one of the greatest aids in this um practice are the meditative absorptions because they bring peacefulness i will explain those at another time in detail but having experienced total peacefulness in meditation of course helps one to resurrect that feeling when necessary our reactions are always based on ego if there's no ego in there who's going to react so if we want to check out any of these reactions that we have rather than having them but checking them we have to of course wait till they subside in other words when we're angry it's useless to try and check out why we're angry because we can't see anything except the anger we have to wait till the anger has subsided again when we're fearful when we are upset any one of these uh, reactions we have to wait till it has subsided and as it has subsided then we can question what did i get angry about well the first answer will be are oh, because he or she said something okay that's not good enough then the next question has to come yes but why should that make me angry now the bottom line of all introspection into reaction is always ego there is no other bottom line however it's useless to know that unless one has come to it oneself through that introspection one has to question and question again until the answer finally is aha uh-huh, ego then one has seen it so 
If one wants to find out why one is reacting the way one does, every answer on the way is a step along insight. Now that too is a very helpful way of practicing, particularly in daily living, because so many reactions happen. And the more we find out that these reactions are not helping us, they're not making us happy, the more we will try to practice letting them arise and cease. Watching them, but not getting involved with them. And eventually, as more and more insight arises, they arri these reactions come up much less. They only completely disappear when one is very near to enlightenment for the non-returner. But at least we can make some inroads upon them. We don't have to keep them going. Equanimity has also, as a necessary ingredient, mindfulness. Because mindfulness is that factor which slows us down. It is uh, the factor which makes it possible to observe what's going on. Mindfulness is a neutral observer. And it stops us from the impulsive and instinctive reaction. So that practice of watching the breath, of watching the movement in the walking meditation, is a training in mindfulness. Mindfulness is a necessary step in order to become concentrated. So when we train in meditation and mindfulness, we absolutely need to use that mindfulness in daily living. If we leave it sitting here on the pillow, then we haven't really got the benefit of it. So that mindfulness will help us to understand when the reaction is coming and to watch it before we get involved in it. We won't always be successful, but even once or twice will be a great benefit and it will give us a security of feeling that we can do it actually. We don't always have to come out with whatever arises in here. We can watch it and let it disappear again. And we might even be able to change it into something useful and wholesome. The difference between indifference and equanimity is being involved but not reacting and the other one is not being involved. I think that should do. I'll give you some time to ask some questions. Are you already fast asleep or still with us? Yes.
You wait till he asks you. <laughs> this, you can't, it's, it's very, uh, very, um, difficult to be a missionary. Not useful. Wait till he asks. After he's bought enough things, one day he might say, you know, I've been buying, 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 but I'm still not happy. Then you can say something. By being happy for his happiness. Huh? Yeah, you have to learn to be. This is a practice path. <laughs> huh? That's right. You have to learn to feel happy. To reading and writing. This is loving and compassionate and joy. What have you learned? Step by step, little by little, day after day. In all our confrontations, we have the classroom. And in that classroom, we are the pupil and the teacher. Yes. Yes, actually it does. <laughs> it's, uh, I'm laughing because it's a funny expression. <laughs> the universe is going to behave. Um, well, yes, if one's heart and mind behave, it uh, it appears that everything around one behaves. You see, if you confront a person with love and compassion, you think that person is very nice. It's a lovable person and a person that you want to be with. But if you confront a person with hate and dislike, well, obviously, it's a hateful person, and it's a person that you don't want to be with. And it can be the same person. So the universe does behave, yes. Hmm? Uh, yeah, <laughs> it's not quite like that. Uh, although the expression is quite, quite, uh, funny and fitting, it isn't quite like that. It isn't that the world around you has changed. The world around you remains exactly the same. But because your, uh, response to it has changed, it looks entirely different. It's exactly the same world. But one's inner responses have changed completely. 
And therefore, whatever happens out there is okay. It's fine. Yes? If it's, uh, if it's strong, certainly. Certainly. The stronger it is, the more influence. If it's only very mild, well, maybe not so much. But at least in one's own home, it will have some influence. And uh, certainly if it's more than just a little, it will have quite a large uh, uh, external influence. Certainly. Yes. Absolutely, absolutely. Shouldn't shouldn't be done like that. Shouldn't do two things at the same time. Not at all. Uh, where are you watching the breath? At what place? To the end. Are you watching it all the way in, and then? All the way out. Okay. Um, the only fed sensation that you want to become aware of is the one that's connected to the breath, not sensations in the body. Nothing like that at all. Only any sensation that's connected to the going in of the breath and the going out of the breath. Is that clear? Yeah. Yeah. Because there is a sensation with it. It may not be everywhere noticeable, but as the breath goes in, there is a sensation. If there isn't, if you can't find it, well, then just watch the breath, but certainly not the sensations in the body. That's two different, two different methods. Okay? Well, the thing is that if you want to be on the breath and you can stay on the breath, that's for calm. But when you can label your thoughts, you get an idea of your thought pattern. You're gaining some insight into your own thought pattern and into the diversification of the mind. And as you see that the, bre- that the thoughts or the thoughts are coming and going, 
and never remaining and never the same, you may gain a little insight into impermanence. You don't need any time for that. You can see that right away as it's happening. Don't need any extra time. Well, are, you, are they are they, um, uh, they pass so fast? Are you able to be on the breath most of the time, or are they so fast because there are so many of them? Okay, you have to pay. Yes, you have to pay more attention. You have to pay more distinct attention. Don't try to label all of them. You can't catch all of them, but try to label something so that you get an idea of what's happening. Otherwise, it is a sort of a nebulous, foggy affair, and meditation has to be total alertness and awareness. So um, don't uh, think that you can label all of them, but you can certainly label something. So try to be in there and try and labeling. And then you can see also uh, how it keeps moving. And that's inside. A little bit at a time. Yes. To Well, no, tension is not not part of the process. Tension is because of wanting, wanting too much, expectation. Uh, I think you have mentioned that you have had better concentration before. Maybe you're sort of looking for that better concentration again or something like that. Certainly there can be very unbalanced effort. Effort has to be balanced. And uh, it has to be, there has to be relaxed effort. The body and mind have to be relaxed and the effort has to be based on the determination that one makes ahead of time, not while one is meditating. The determination of, I want to be concentrated, I want to watch the breath, whatever it may be, and then let that go and relax into it. And there's nothing to gain and nothing to to get. There's only to be aware of. So it's certainly one can make a, an effort which uh, creates tension, it can create headaches, it can, uh, uh, and it usually has in it expectation. And that is, uh, that is not uh, helpful at all. So it's a, it's a always a, a the, the balancing has to be there. There's a story of in the Buddhist time, 
of balanced effort. There was a monk uh, who had become a, a young monk who had become a monk just recently and uh, he had come from a very rich family. So he had never gone barefoot before. But walking meditation is traditionally done barefoot. So he was determined he's going to get enlightened right away. So he did his walking meditation day in and day out, up and down this uh, sandy path, barefoot. And after about three months of that, his uh, feet started, the soles of his feet started to split and it became extremely painful and started bleeding and it got more and more painful. So finally he thought to himself, I've been doing this month after month. I've never become concentrated yet. I have, my feet are hurting me so much. I think I'll disrobe and go home to my family and use the wealth of my family to support the Buddha. Well, the Buddha heard about that and went to see the young monk and saw the blood uh, spots on the walking path. And he said, what is, what is this? Why is there blood here? The young monk said, I've been doing my walking meditation up and down, but I never got concentrated, and now my the soles of my feet have uh, split and uh, are hurting so badly, I think I'm going to disrobe. And the Buddha said, when you were still a layman, did you have a veena? A veena is an Indian string instrument, like a guitar, only bigger, and also the tone is uh, softer. So the young monk said, yes, I used to have a veena. And the Buddha said, and did you used to tune it yourself? And the monk said, yes, I did. And the Buddha said, well, if you let the strings be too loose... What did you did you get any good sound? He said, No, the strings are too loose. There was nothing, you couldn't hear any sound. And then the Buddha said, And if you tightened them too much, what did you get? And the monk said, Well, screeching and scratching didn't get any good music at all. And the Buddha said, You see, that's right. You have to tune it exactly right in order to get music. The same is here. You have to tune it exactly right. If you leave the strings of your effort too loose, nothing happens at all. But if you tighten it up too much, you don't get anything either. So it has to be exactly in the middle. So that is the, the balancing of the effort. It has to be like the tuning of a musical instrument. But only oneself can do it. There's nobody that can do it for one. Just like one tunes and listens. The same with his effort. Anything else? So what would you look for meditations that are Well, if you're out of tune because the um the strings are let too loose, uh the mind is foggy, nebulous doesn't know, has no awareness and alertness, doesn't know what's going on, and can't concentrate. Then the string is too loose, particularly when the mind doesn't know uh, what's happening. And when the strings are too tight, you get a headache, a uh, backache, neck starts hurting, um, you're totally discontented with your practice, 
Are you constantly co uh, comparing how it used to be and how it is now? Um, what other people can do and what you can't do? Um, and um, the uh, you have expectation and therefore disappointment. And you're also not watching what's going on. So the, the signs are quite clear, really. And I think that everybody does know, because you can tell yourself. Anything else? Yes. Not necessarily, because we know from our own problems that a problem is just a problem, and uh, it doesn't have to be exactly the same one. It can just be the problems that we have solved with universal understanding and not individual and personal understanding, because all problems have the same solutions, if we have seen that. So we can help another person if we have already learned how to get out of our own dukkha. We don't have to have all the problems. We have plenty of them as it is, but not all of them. <laughs> we can leave a few out and still have compassion. No, it works on a universal basis. Please put the attention on the breath for just a moment. Think of yourself as your own best friend, the one who can help you to have happiness, to fill you with joy and contentment, to look after you. Surround yourself with the warmth that comes from a best friend. Now think of yourself as the best friend of the person sitting nearest you in this hall. A best friend who cares. And fill that person with joy and contentment and surround him or her with the warmth that comes from a best friend.
and now think of yourself as the best friend of everyone here. A best friend who is caring and concerned, grateful for the companionship, Fill everyone with joy and contentment and surround everyone with the warmth that comes from the heart of a best friend. Think of yourself as the best friend of your parents. Fill them with that care and concern with the friendship. Surround them with warmth. Let them know you are there for them. Think of yourself as the best friend of those people who are nearest and dearest to you. Ready to help. Filling them with your friendship. Surrounding them with your warmth. And think of all your good friends and feel yourself to be their best friend. Filling them with the sincerity and depth of your friendship, your care, and surrounding and embracing them with the warmth from your heart. Think of those people whom you meet here or there, whom you may know or not, just seeing them, 
at work, on the street, in the shops, in the neighborhood. Feel yourself to be their best friend. Let them enter into your heart. In the same way, your friends are in there. Fill them with your care and concern. Surround them with the warmth from your heart. Think of any one person whom you find difficult to love, to care for. Forgive and forget. Become that person's friend too. So that there are no obstacles in your own heart. Let him or her have the same warmth from your heart as everyone else. And now open your heart wide, as wide as possible, so that this feeling of warmth and friendship, of care and concern, can reach out to as many people as possible, near and far. Let as many as you can enter into your heart, to be anchored there, in your friendship in your care. Reach out as far as you can, thinking of people in the cities, in the villages, on the land, in this country and other countries, making friends with all of them. Letting your heart speak to all of them.
Now put your attention back on yourself. Feel this friendship for yourself. Feel it as your guide. Feel it as a base. on which you can be secure. Surround yourself with the warmth of a best friend. And fill yourself with the joy that comes from having a best friend so near. May all beings be friends with each other. 